0: back once again for another edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host for this evening. It's January 30th, 2014. And as you may already know, we are swiftly approaching the end of the Derby City Classic, probably the largest pool tournament in the world at this point. And we want to send some congratulations out to Shane Van Boning for taking the uh, Bigfoot Challenge title there, and uh, Dennis Orcoyo for uh, taking the Night in Ball Banks title. But before we get any further, let me just go ahead and apologize in advance. Uh, my voice is kind of toasted today, and uh, it might end up being a little crackly in your ear, so I apologize in advance. As a matter of fact, my contribution this week, unfortunately, will be pretty short and sweet. I am going to have to give uh, it a, a chance to rest and heal, so... Sorry guys, uh, but uh, I'm not going to be able to talk very much for you this evening. Um, I will bring up one thing real quick before I go. Um, I did get a press release uh, yesterday from Daniel Bush of POV Pool and uh, he has uh, made a an effort to change the business model under which he works on his streaming events. And uh, Daniel, if you could briefly tell us a little bit more about that, please.
1: Yeah, basically, POV Pool is, uh, I'm very happy to announce a new live stream revenue sharing program. And I'm coining it LSRS for short. And basically, what LSRS is, is exactly what it is, a live stream revenue-sharing program. And uh, you might wonder, which revenue and which stream and <laughs> what program? Well, basically, when Pob Pool provides a pay-per-view option for you to uh, watch any of the live streams that are paid or on demand, POV pool will provide a percentage of the profits to the venue and to the players who participate in the event. Uh, And this can also sometimes include commentators and also uh, tournament or event promoters. So, in other words, just simply put, um, when there's money to be made from a pay-per-view event that is streamed live by POV pool, That also means that there is um, a percentage of money that can be made by everybody that's involved with that production, uh, including the players, the venues, and the promoters.
0: Thanks, Daniel. That sounds like an interesting concept and and, uh, something that could be very beneficial uh, if it works out in the future. We wish you the best of luck, obviously, and uh, let us know how uh, things are going to turn out. I will go ahead and uh, relinquish the microphone to uh, the rest of our guests and I will be catching up with you guys uh, next week. Take care.
2: Welcome back to American Billiard Radio. This is Mark Cantrell with the Legends and Champions Report. And we did a special report earlier in the week, uh, just based on the interview that we had with Luke Richards from Metro Sports, and we thought it was time-sensitive. And then after that, um, on AZ Billiard's forums, a gentleman named Joey A., he uh, asked about maybe getting some information from Europe for the snooker players and, and things like that. So I am happy to be joined with my good buddy, Mr. Jim White, who is is a former pro snooker player and uh, Moscone Cup commentator. You you may know him best from being the commentator and uh, face on uh, the, the production. And he's been at every Moscone Cup since the beginning of time. Well, this is the beginning of the Moscone Cup. And so, how you doing, Jimbo? Good to have you on, buddy.
3: Well, apart from being a little chilly up here in Canada,
2: Mark, not too bad. <laughs> you know what you say? It's what, uh, minus 30 or something there? Uh?
3: With the wind chill, yeah. And uh, we live in a suburb of Toronto. It's uh, minus 30 degrees centigrade. So I don't know what that works out to in Fahrenheit, but <laughs> suffice it to say water's freezing.
2: Oh, man, I tell you, I, yeah, it's, it's been uh, it's been quite cold here. It's been uh, jumped all the way down to seventy here in Arizona. So I understand what you're going through.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, Mark,
2: I don't want to hear it. <laughs> um, let, I, a question I have for you: since we spoke, that you've all, I, I just said that you've been uh, part of the Muscone Cup since the very beginning, the very first one when it was men and women, and there was all kinds of people playing. And I think they had a bar. Didn't they have a bar for the players on the floor at one point. Well, they actually did. They actually uh,
3: they hired uh, a bartender, uh, one of those guys that twirls the bottles and the glasses. And he was a young fellow. And I remember them bringing him out, and they would cut to him going into commercial breaks and everything. You know, I don't ever remember seeing him drop a glass.
2: But he was pouring drinks for the players.
3: For pouring drinks for the players, the fans, anyone who came his way. But it, uh, it was pure entertainment.
2: Wow. Well, based on you seeing everything up close and personal, do you have a memorable moment? And, and I'm I'm sorry to, to some of the listeners, This my show's starting to become the Moscone Cup show, and it's not intended. It just seems like sometimes things are relevant. But uh, is, there a, is there a moment that you remember, Jimbo, that's... Uh, the most memorable moment to you?
3: Oh, there's been so many. Um, certainly, uh, you know, in the early days when it was uh, it was all American domination, and I'm talking when uh, Jeanette Lee and Vivian Villarreal were part of the team and a lady named Francesca Stark from Germany and uh, Alison Fisher was on Team Europe. Uh, I mean, any time that uh, Team USA needed a point, All they had to do was put the women in, and uh, the European women had no chance against the American women. I even remember Barry Hearn ducking into the commentary box, and I said that to him. His words, it was like throwing lambs to the slaughter. And uh, that's just how it was. I mean, the the Europeans really had no chance. Really?
2: And Allison Allison was playing for Team Europe at that point?
3: Allison was playing for Team Europe at that point, and uh, I went on record as saying she'd never be a good pool player. How'd I do? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> but you know something, Mark? Coming from a snooker background, uh probably one of my fondest memories and uh and working with my uh my, my very good friend, the late Sid Waddell. Um we were doing a match with uh Jimmy White and Alex Higgins playing for Team Europe and Jimmy White ended up making the last nine ball and Alex came around the table and kissed him. And uh, and obviously Alex Higgins has passed on now and uh, and Jimmy is still around doing a little snooker commentary, I understand, in the UK. But at that time I was still playing snooker, so these were, were two guys that I used to practice with Alex all the time. And uh, I'm, I've gone shopping a few times with Jimmy when we were in Europe at the, the European Open. and So the, the snooker players, you know, we did chum around an awful lot. But uh, seeing those two guys playing pool... That's just something I'll never, ever
2: forget. You used to practice with Alex Higgins?
3: Alex had a snooker table in his home when he lived in Presbury, just outside Manchester, and he threw me the keys to his car. He had got banned for driving, and he said, if you come and practice with me, you can drive my car. So I needed a car at the time. I was was handcuffed. I, I went up and practiced with him every day.
2: That's got to be an experience right there.
3: You know something, Alex, a lot of people, they they talk about, you know, the the Alex Higgins who's had a few drinks and, you know, he might throw a cue at a wall or at somebody's head. But I'll tell you something, Mark, if you kept Alex sober, he had a heart as big as all outdoors. He had a, a tailor in Ireland and he was a very famous tailor. And Alex was the same size as me. And I remember him taking me upstairs in his house and it was a beautiful house. And uh, the closet was the length of the wall, and it was full of tailor-made suits. And he just said, "Jimmy, help yourself. You know, whatever, uh, whatever suits you like, go ahead, take one. Uh, you know, take as many as you like. They're yours." And and that's kind of the Alex Higgins I remember.
2: Yeah, I just can't imagine being on my own. Well, you know, it's the same. It's- A little bit the same with uh, my experiences with Earl Strickland. You know, Earl Strickland, you know, there's somewhat of a similarity, you know, between Alex Higgins and uh, Earl Strickland. Not the the drinking part necessarily, just the, you know, erratic behavior sometimes. But, you know, you get on your own with Earl, and he is an absolute sweetheart of a fella. To yeah. be around, so I, a lot of people don't know these things, and uh, that's that's good to know about Alex, like though. So.
3: And and you know something, both of them highly intelligent. You get into conversations, they they can almost converse on any level about a variety of different subjects. I mean, they were geniuses on their respective tables, but off the table, as long as you uh, you know you had their focus and their attention, they could hold a conversation.
2: Right. Uh, well. If, if, that's, uh, that's good. He's good. He's good information. I know a lot of people, uh, pool fans here in America know of Alex Higgins and, you know, some of his antics and, and he's pretty popular. He's one of the most popular, uh, snooker players, I think, among American pool and billiard fans. Uh, obviously along with Ronnie O'Sullivan, he seems like he's turned into the, uh, the, the next big fan favorite for the United States.
3: Yeah, well, Alex was definitely the crowd favorite. I even remember playing a match. Um, it was in Stoke-on-Trent, a place called Trentham Gardens. And uh, I had just got beat, and I'd, I'd lost to Jimmy. And um, walking out, and I remember saying to one of the ushers on my way out, heading back to my car, I says, man, was that place ever packed? And uh, the lady usher said to me, she said, you think it was busy tonight? The Hurricanes play, believe me, we really see the crowd that comes in here later on and that was obviously Alex Higgins. So they didn't have enough seats when he played.
2: Right. Um, I'm going to go over something I've been over with uh, Luke in the the last interview, which nice to get different perspectives. Uh, Obviously, you're connected with Matchroom Sports and Sky Sports, and you already know that Mark Wilson's been uh, announced as captain of Team USA. And I just want you to know what your opinion is of the pick and what kind of fellow Mark Wilson is.
3: Well, I, I know Mark pretty well. And um, believe it or not, a couple years ago, I, I think I might even have thrown his name in the fire to uh, to try and see whether they would consider using him. Um, I, I think that Mark is a fantastic coach. Uh, I, I think that what Team USA needs is someone who can bond all these players together, someone who can get into each one of their heads and be as much of a psychologist as a coach. Um, As you know, Mark, having followed the Moscone Cup for a number of years as well, it's not necessarily about how well they play as individuals. It's how they meld as a team. And that's where Europe, uh, with the European Tour, you see these guys, they're eating and drinking together, even when they're playing in these events as individuals. And um, this, this yep. is something the Americans can learn from. And I know one thing that, that Mark Wilson is giving a lot of free rein on right now. He's got a lot of time to put this together. No other captain has been announced this early. And, and Mark has, well, he's got well over 10 months to think about a plan of attack, start thinking about the players that he wants to represent the USA and uh, and and you know put them into into practice scenarios to see what players work with other players and how the mentalities can gel because that's the biggest thing is you with pool players and it doesn't matter whether they are European or American or you know whether they're Asian I mean pool players snooker players all of us we tend to have very fragile egos and it's a delicate balance that you've got to try and uh, and, and work within. And um, this is going to be the biggest hurdle for Mark, is trying to find that delicate balance and find players that are, are willing to go to the wall for their partners and for their teammates, win or lose. Because in the Moscone Cup over the last number of years, the Europeans have all been there front and center. They win as a team, they lose as a team. A lot of times you look out in the crowd and not all the American players are there. So um, this is this is something, though, the one thing that, that Mark Wilson does bring to the table is he's fresh. And I'll tell you something a lot of people may not know. I remember Mark Wilson hitting the last ball in the Moscone Cup in the early days, too. So he's got experience there as a player. He's going to have a real good understanding of what it takes to uh, at least get the Americans competitive again. And I think he's willing to take it one step at a time. He's, he's not looking to go over to Blackpool in uh, December this year and, and win the Moscone Cup back. First and foremost, they've got to get competitive again because it, it really has been one-way traffic and it's all going to Team Europe right now. So that's, that's first and foremost. They've got, to, they've got to let the Europeans know that they're going to be in for a fight.
2: Do you do you think that the, in my opinion, I've, I've thought about this a few, uh, for a little while now. Do you think that the team unity is the answer? And the reason I ask that is because obviously you've got to have your chances and you has got to have the roles going for you sometimes, and you've got to be focused. But each of these players, and it's, He's not going to pick, Mark Wilson's not going to pick a bunch of amateurs, right? So these people can actually beat any other player on any given day. Once you get to a certain level, I believe that you can just It's kind of who's on form, who's focused that day, and, and those kind of things. So given the fact that, in my opinion... Each, any player can be any other player on any other given day. That only leads me to believe that the only missing factor is the team unity. Am I off on that? or what's your uh, you know, what's your? Opinion? Well
3: Well, you know something, there's an awful lot of talent. When the Moscone Cup comes around, you've got as much talent on that pool table as you're ever going to see. And um, as far as I'm concerned, the only difference is how these guys act off the table. Um, you know, the the Europeans, you go into the European dressing room, you've got all the banners on the wall, all the motivational sayings, the team pictures, everything is there. And You go into the American dressing room and the walls are bare. There's really nothing there that, that I've seen, you know, past or present, that these guys can really look at and, and dig down for that, that pride, you know, that uh, every one of them. You know, nobody likes to lose. These guys hate losing. But it's, I think it's more a fear of losing than a will to want to win. And I, I think that's what Mark Wilson is facing right now. He's got to try and, you know, stress the positives, turn everything into a, a will to win as opposed to a fear of losing. And, um, you know, something Mark's in a real tough spot. He's talked about having a youth movement, and which I think is, is probably a very good idea but I still think he needs that mix of experience in there. And Mark, you talk about unity. I mean, the Moscone Cup is all about unity. You've got so much talent there that as individuals, it's it's a different ballgame. And yet for one team to go out there and completely dominate as the Europeans did in Vegas this year, there was no explanation for that. And, um, I mean, a lot of people really thought that this was going to be as competitive a year for the Americans as, as has been in the last few. Well, how wrong were they? And, and I was one of those. I really did think the Americans were going to be a lot more competitive this year. I just, I underestimated the Europeans. I won't do it again. And believe me, the Americans have a very uphill battle in Blackpool because the crowd there, it's going to be three times the size of what they've seen in Vegas, and they are going to be as pro-Europe as any you're going to you're going to see in recent times. So I, you talk well, about going into into enemy waters.
2: I know, and and the thing is, and uh, again, as was brought up in the chat I had with Luke, the the ticket sales. We don't know who the teams are. We don't know who the teams are, and the sold forty percent of seats in an hour without knowing who the teams are.
3: Well, thank God they didn't put them all on sale. They might all have gone right away.
2: I know. I'm trying to get some comp tickets. I'm going to hit you up. I'm going to hit Luke up. I'm going to get hold of <laughs> Barry Hearn. <laughs> yeah, Mark, my... it,
3: Blackpool, is, is it's the nature of the city, too. I mean, for, for Matchroom to take this event to Blackpool, a stroke of genius. And, and again, you know, to have nominated Mark Wilson as the, the captain for Team USA this year. And and I, I said this to Luke. I think it's a fantastic move on their part because they they've got people talking about the two thousand and fourteen Moscone Cup and we're still in the first month of two thousand and fourteen. <laughs>
4: I know.
2: know. It's, uh, It's really astounding, really, and I think, I know that last year with the 20th anniversary and what they wanted to do, I believe, for whatever reason, and coming after that devastating crushing that Team USA got, I'm amazed. It seems like this 2014 already has more traction than the 20th anniversary did when there was all these surprises in store and you got Earl coming back and things like that. It seems like this has got more traction already, and we're not even close to it.
3: Yeah, Just imagine how big it's going to be then. It's almost like they give you two weeks to lead up to Super Bowl for all the hype and build-up. Well, we've only got 11 months for the very same thing to happen for the Moscone Cup. It's, uh, this is going to be one you definitely won't want to miss.
2: Right, and, and we had a um, a conversation about uh, earlier about Blackpool, and we both have a lot of experience uh, with Blackpool. And uh, you know, I'm not trying to turn this into another uh, show where I hop on about how great the place is, but I, I think that the European, the American fans who decide to travel, if they can, if that's if they can get tickets. The European fans who decide, the American fans who decide to travel, are going to have a real experience that they probably they will never forget as long as they'll live. Because an American in general says, "Oh, I'm going to go to Europe. I'm going to go to England, and they go to London, and maybe they'll go to Ireland, but they don't know about Blackpool necessarily." <laughs> well blackpool and,
3: and I had mentioned this, I think it's like the las Vegas in england it's um know it's got all the pomp and uh and all the you know the passion from a, you know from a seaside town it it's right on the coast uh it's it's you know it's that wind coming off the water you've got the Blackpool illuminations at night it really is a holiday area might not seem that way now, but, I mean, for years and years, it it was the place to go in the north of England. And for our American fans that are thinking about it, don't book your flight into London if you're thinking of going to Blackpool. Book it to Manchester, because if you book your flight into Manchester, you're about an hour train ride into Blackpool. Yeah, um,
2: And, and and that on its own is a treat, because if you, you know, the English countryside is beautiful, and that, oh, you, you get you take that sure. train through the, through the Pennine Mountains and through the English countryside and then you hit Blackpool, I mean, people would probably go on vacation to England and take a train ride just to see the countryside. And yes. this is part, and you can, part of the deal.
3: Yeah, and you can set your watch by the trains there, too. I mean, they really are, uh, are extremely precise as to, uh, you know, when they're in and out of their stations. But it's, um, I mean, Blackpool is going to be a treat. It's its a fantastic place to take the Moscone Cup. I, I've got so many memories from Blackpool, having played in so many of the qualifiers when I was still playing snooker in the 80s and 90s. We played all our qualifiers in Blackpool, and I can't tell you how many times I've walked up and down the prom in Blackpool and when the wind's been freezing and I've either won or lost a match and I'm walking down there with my cue and my teeth are chattering and I can't wait to get where I'm at least warm again. So if nothing else, Mark, when I think about that now, and I'm, I'm letting the dog in as we speak, and our, our dog is, come Shadow, our dog's not too uh, too bright, I guess doesn't mind the cold, that fur jacket must help. But um you yeah,
2: your dog. Looks, your hold on a second, your dog is not too bright, but you live there. Oh yeah, yeah the you chose yeah, to live there. I'm,
3: All back, right, I'm, in,
2: I'm inside, the dog's outside. <laughs> <laughs> well you know, if, if you're talking about that cold air in Blackpool and and, and and that kind of thing, if you were to go to Blackpool right now with that cold air, based on where you are right now you'd probably pawn some shorts.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you what, it'd probably feel warm. Nothing, this is the coldest I remember it in Canada in 25 years that we've lived in the Toronto area. But uh, boy, I'll never forget that cold wind coming off the the Irish Sea, walking down the prom in Blackpool, though. And I even mentioned it to Barry when we were in Vegas. I said, Blackpool, Blackpool in December, can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, based on, uh, you know, the... um post that I received on uh Billiards forums. Uh, let me switch out of Moscone Cup mode and ask you, you how long were you playing professional snooker? Uh, from
3: 1980 <laughs> through the 96-97 season, so 17 years.
2: The golden years.
3: The golden years,
2: yes. And that's how I prefer it. You know, you had Steve Davis, you had Cliff Thorburn, you're... Uh, Fellow countryman there, and Bill Werbenek. Bill, Bill Wurbenuck, used to drink like seventeen pints of lager during his they match. Used, right?
3: Mark, they used to have to put his table as close to the washroom as they could possibly get it. He was the only player I've ever seen that they would stop a frame in the middle of it and allow him to go to the washroom. <laughs> seventeen Anyone? pints. Seventeen pints of lager before the match started.
2: That's, and now, what people have to remember is this guy was a he was a top professional player, and he, he drank seventeen pounds and the alcohol level in the beer in Europe, I believe is much higher and so it might be the equivalent of drinking thirty beers yeah over yeah. Over, over a while why while, uh,
3: well, about a three or 17. four hour period, yeah, but over over the the duration of the match and, and leading up to it. But the thing about Bill and and any time I've ever gone back to the UK, because a lot of people may not know that I, I commentated professional snooker for seven or eight years before they transitioned me over onto uh, onto pool. And um, you know, I would when I'd go over and uh, hop into a taxi at the airport. More people ask me about Bill Werbenach than any other player, certainly than any other Canadian. And, really? Um, oh, and, and I mean, what really made Bill famous was that he, he tried to declare his beer expenses, the, the money that he would spend on lager, he tried to declare it as a tax write-off because because he wanted to say there was a nerve in the back of his neck that only alcohol could steady when he played. <laughs> And and everybody, I mean, it was front page news, and and he never did get away
2: with it, but what a try! Oh my goodness, that's that's hysterical right there. Well, your your, your other ca- Canadian uh, superstar was uh, in snooker was Cliff Thorburn, who you know he plays a lot of snooker and pool in Canada it's still to this day, I guess. And uh, he had that one four seven uh, break that was televised, and Bill Webernick was on uh, that. He came around to congratulate him. Um, yeah. But my oh, my mom, she used to fancy um, Cliff Thorburn. <laughs> <laughs> Cliff,
3: and I've known Cliff longer than any other professional player. Um, we we both grew up in Western Canada. And um, I mean, he was he was the leader of the pack, wasn't he, for the Canadians? I mean, we all followed suit. But um, I still talk to Cliff. There aren't many weeks go by we don't if we're not firing jokes back and forth, you know, via email. You know, we'll we'll speak to each other. But he's still, I mean, he's 66. He just turned 66. I don't know whether he'd be thrilled about me letting everybody know that. And he can still play snooker and to a pretty decent standard. He goes back and forth uh, over to the U.K. for the, uh, the Seniors Tour, the Legends Tour over there. And uh, Steve Davis is playing in that and a number of the, the old great players. But, um, gosh, if Cliff, if, if I would have had half the dedication to play snooker that Cliff had and, and you know, how strong his mind was, yeah, you know, I I probably would have been a lot more successful. He's, I mean, he was my idol. He was my idol growing up playing the game, and he's still my idol now. He's sixty six, and I think he's still going. Well, I, he's going to be around your, for a long time.
2: He was your idol growing up. You guys about the same age? Just are you are you all on, I, older? Than
3: no, it? no. I'm I'm uh, <laughs> I, I I Mark. I don't want to tell anyone how old
0: I am, but no, I'm not as old as Cliff.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to catch the rest of this interview, go ahead and visit our website at www.americanbilliardradio.com and hit the archives section and you will be able to hear the interview with Mark and Jim Witch in its entirety.
5: Hi, I'm Scott Lee, PBIA Master Instructor from Largo, Florida.
4: And I'm Randy Gettlicker, PVIA Master Instructor from Dallas, Texas. Welcome back. And welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. This week we're going to be talking about
5: SPF, also known as Set, Pause, Finish, which are the three stops in our stroke. Tell us about a little bit about SPF, Randy.
4: Well, it was developed years ago to help uh, uh, analyze uh, a pool stroke, anybody's pool stroke. All pool players have to stop their cue at least three times. Uh, Actually we've got no choice in that matter. Pool schools simply labeled and assigned values to those three stops. SPF are diagnostic tools that we can use to evaluate our pool stroke, any part of our stroke, anytime we want to, anywhere that we're at.
5: Okay so the the three common uh, parts to SPF are stopping the cue at the cue ball. Which, which
4: we refer to as setting the cue, doing your aiming. This, uh,
5: is, this is once I'm done aiming and once I'm done warming up, correct? Yes. And then uh, a- after we've stopped at the cue ball we have to bring our cue stick back smoothly to the end of our natural backswing and we have to naturally stop
4: there. Sure, an object moving in one direction usually has to stop to move in the opposite direction, and we do that smoothly and and we coordinate that. We call it the pause.
5: And So it's really not a matter of how long you pause. Oh,
4: golly, no. It's
5: a matter of how smooth you transfer the direction of the cue stick. Right,
4: because you're you're using tricep-bicep muscle here, and they need some time to move. There are a
5: lot of players out there who believe mistakenly in, in our opinion that they don't pause on the end of the backswing because it's so brief. But whether you pause for a couple tenths of a second all the way up to a couple of seconds, it's still a stop.
4: Yeah, all you're doing is moving your cue back and stopping it. It's not a timing issue. Or it could, it could become one if you do it you know, improperly. So,
5: And then there's the finish position. And that's the that's the most important part
4: in the whole process, right? And see, instead of talking about hitting the ball and following through, and I think you and I have gone over this uh, before, we simply accelerate our backhand through the cubo to a final resting place. All right, and each human being is going to be a little bit different, but it's a predetermined uh, finished position where you can register it, measure it and make sure you're doing it the same way all the time. And that's what diagnostic tools are, Scott. Absolutely. That's a great, great topic for discussion, Randy. What are we going to talk about next time? Well, I think we should talk about uh, video analysis and how important it is for a student to be able to see themselves.
5: I think that's a great topic of discussion.
4: Join us next week. I'm Randy G.
5: I'm Scott Lee for the One Minute Pool Instructor. The first to do nothing to do it 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 to do it
6: to do it 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 to do it. Welcome to this week's edition of Pool on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. I'm your host, Allison Fisher of NYCgrind.com, and joining me this week is Jennifer Beretta, WPBA Pro and local player to New York City. How are you doing this week, Jennifer? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for joining us. I guess what what I'd like to start off with is... Maybe tell me a little bit about what you've been involved with lately in terms of tournaments and things that you've been working on in your game.
7: Uh, well th- this year earlier this actually in 2013 um, I made a huge fundamentals change and um, I'm still trying to make that change a part of my routine right now I still struggle with it um, and unfortunately there isn't a lot to compete in to really test it um, but I compete a lot with the men. Obviously, we don't really have any ladies' events, um, but I do try to go overseas and, and play in some of those events. Which events are you mainly playing in here in New York? Um, I just started playing the Wednesday night tournament uh, at Steinway. Just good practice, you know. lots of pressure because the equipment's a little easy and everybody runs out. Um, I'll play in Predator, 10 ball events, which I love 10 ball. Uh, you know, having luck not counting is, is huge. It's so much more fun. Um, and uh, the occasional mez. What would you say is one of the benefits to
6: being here in New York in terms of being a pool player and also being a, full, um, being a female pool player? Do you feel like it's beneficial to you personally?
7: I think that New York might be the best place in the country for pool right now. We have, we don't have a lot of rooms, but the rooms that we have are super high quality. There are a lot of great players around. I mean, here in Steinway, on any given night, there'll be, you know, Wang Kan, Earl Strickland, uh, Warren Kiyomko, um, that's just to name a few. I mean, there's so many of them, and um, they're pretty generous with their knowledge. You know, if you ask them, they'll help you, and being a woman, they're, you're, there, you're never going to compete directly with them, so they're more likely to help you than another guy
6: yeah, absolutely. I really do feel like here there is such a almost magnetism for pool and the top players and it's really a benefit for both the both the players and uh, the promoters and the pool rooms because they're I feel like there's so much more. Opportunities for bigger events and more interesting and fun
7: um, opportunities overall. Well, one of the other great things about being here is that we have a ton of competitive tours. We do have the Mes Tour. We have the Predator Tour. Uh, there's both a handicapped division and an open division. We have the Joss Tour. It's a bit of a hike, but it's a they, he puts on Mike Zuglin puts on great events. Um, so we, ju- we have a lot of opportunity to compete and um, stay sharp. Now,
6: I know you do have the WPBA Masters coming up in Michigan here next week. Uh, what are you doing in particular to prepare for that event?
7: Um, before an event, I like to put in a lot of alone time. Uh, I feel like it really puts me in tune with my body and my mechanics. and. You know, you just hit more balls, and the more balls you hit, the more in stroke you get, the more you get your arm in the slot. So I try to scale back practicing with people. I'll play tournaments here and there to stay tournament sharp, but for the most part, I just play alone, do drills and things like that.
6: I know you've been on the tour for quite a few years. How many years is it now that you've been playing on the WPBA?
7: Uh, Believe it or not, I have been a touring pro for 10 years. (laughs) I can't believe it. What do you think are some of the things that have changed the most over that course of time for the tour? Well, when I was trying to get on the tour, it was a dogfight. I mean, you could not get in events unless you won qualifiers. You didn't get in events by... Finishing high-end qualifiers you got in them by winning qualifiers and once once you won the qual and the qualifiers were strong And then once you won that qualifier you had to finish in the top half of four events within a season Which was eight to ten events back then and uh, if not you just had to keep trying to win qualifiers and uh, I was very lucky because the first um, The first year that they made the qualifier tour year-end points winner got entry into all the WPBA events for the next year. So that's what allowed me in 2004 to turn pro. But now, you know, it's uh, they sort of go through the phone book and say, hey, do you play pool? Do you want to play an event?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the landscape has changed a lot. And I know for me, following pool through those years, uh, there were a lot more tour events, of course. And I know there are fewer opportunities for the pros to stay in, um, in form, playing on a regular basis. What do you feel, in your personal opinion, that th- should be maybe changed? What, what sort of things could be improved upon?
7: Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I have always felt that people like to watch people. And regardless of whether that game is golf or tennis or pool, they all have heroes and villains. And I think that within pool, people know who the, who the heroes and villains are, but it was never really established outside of pool. And the programming really only shows you a race to seven or a race to nine. And there's no interaction with the players and there's no backstory on the players. And it's hard for people to pick someone to root for. So why would they watch it?
6: yeah I think that's really important is that a lot of the times you need to have some identifiability. The players need to have uh, an audience that relates to them, and I think that's one of the big gaps in the game right now is that you can't you can't say that we have an audience that can easily identify who the top players are on the tours whether it be men or women and obviously there isn't a unified men's tour at the moment so i feel like there's um a l- progress that can be made in that area and i think that the progress is happening but it's
7: slow well uh, we're in a tough economy Absolutely. And, uh, you know that economy made it tougher to book events and not booking events uh led to losing espn at least on tv which i think um you know it's great that it's on the internet and it is going to be live and people can view it as it happens but you're not going to pick up any new fans you know you're not going to get the channel surfers that say oh hey look at this women playing pool um, so hopefully we can change that, and I think that'll at least help it get back in the right direction. Yeah, I think the TV
6: sp- exposure is really key, and and at, at least you know if you have the if you have the exposure on ESPN or whatever other channels could be potential outlets for pool, then you'll you'll see them more often on a regular basis.
7: I'll say that, you know, it's, it's you can't have TV programming without events and uh, until the event calendar picks back up, it's, we're sort of in a catch-22. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So I guess what I would also like to
6: finish up with is what are you looking forward to in 2014? What are your, some of your goals or some of the things that you're aspiring to for the year?
7: Um, Well, unfortunately, they're not really pool-related. I have a business, and my business has been doing better than ever, and I've been making a great living, and I'm I'm really focusing all my energy into that and into my seven-year-old son. And pool has become, unfortunately, a very expensive hobby for me that, luckily, I can afford.
6: (laughs) Now, what is your business?
7: Uh, I I talk about that a little bit sure I own a personal training studio with my ex-husband here in New York and um, it's it's been doing extremely well and uh, I get to you know I don't train people I i sort of run the place and I get to do a lot of creative things like build a website and you know any kind of graphic design and things like that Um, and and I love it it's mine and and it Gives me a nice living and it allows me to play pool if I choose to. Awesome. Well,
6: it's great that you have something that you're passionate about outside of pool, and that really in New York, I feel even if there isn't enough to have pool be your main focus, there's still plenty going on in terms of um, activity. Mm-hmm. So, We really appreciate you being on the show this week, and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. All right. Well, this is Allison Fisher signing out. And make sure to tune in for next week's edition of Pool on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com.
8: Hello, everybody. Welcome to AZ Billiards on American Billiard Radio. I'm back with my partner in crime, Jerry Forsyth, today.
9: Jerry, how's the weather out there? Oh, please. You would ask that. I tried to get to Derby City yesterday and couldn't get six miles away from my house. Roads were solid ice. Uh, In fact, when I got to Highway 27, you couldn't tell where the highway stopped and the field started. So I gave up on that. And then last night, well, let's put it this way. When we woke up this morning, it was minus five degrees outside. So all the roads that melted, if any of them did, yesterday refroze overnight. So I've given up on trying to get to Derby.
8: You never believe me when I tell you what the weather's like out here. So the only thing I can suggest is this weekend when you're home, bundled up in blankets, Turn on TV and look for the Phoenix Open, and and you'll see just what the weather's like
9: out here. Yeah, I'll make sure I do that.
8: (laughs) Well, for those who did make it to Derby City, we've got a brand new Banks champion. Yeah. Dennis Orcoyo, did you watch the final match? I did. I've never seen Dennis react like that. I
9: was really surprised. Uh, I mean, he went off like a kid. I mean, it was great, but, but I was surprised.
8: It was a very well-played match, but that would be expected. Yeah. Yeah. We're uh, we're about two rounds away from having a one-pocket champion, and I won't say a new one-pocket champion because I believe all three of the gentlemen still in it have won the title at least once in the past. Uh, Shannon, Efren, and Freezer.
9: Yeah, I believe so.
8: Well, I know Freezer has, and I know Shannon has, and Efren's won – every title on the
9: planet. Well, I know Eprin has too, because I watched him.
8: Okay. Any surprise to you that these are the three players at the end?
9: Well, I'm going to repeat, not verbatim, but what Mark Wilson was talking about on the stream the other day. I'm amazed that the bank pool kings of the world are now from Manila instead of from Louisville or Lexington um the the philippine the way the way their game has come up on banking balls is amazing and it's uh, I'm sorry, they just did not use to bank this good, and they sure do now and and I watched the
8: same matches and I listened to mark's commentary and and he's right I mean they probably play bank pool once a year, and this is it um you know at least for this week the uh, balance of power is shifted back to the Philippines.
9: Yeah, it's, it's amazing how the Philippines has resurged in the last, what, six or eight months. And that's after we've heard that all the action in the Philippines has died. So they're not under the gun all the time. They don't have as much, uh, you know, they're not at, in, in fire uh, much anymore, and yet they're still able to play at the top level. I'm, I'm a little surprised to see Efren in the final three. And, and
8: you know, I, I'm certainly not trying to take anything away from Efren, and nobody would ever want to do that. But, you know, I've said before that I think he's he's reached his prime and he's on his way down. But, you know, every time when it comes to especially Derby, he, he proves his detractors wrong.
9: Well, we said he was washed up when he turned 50, and... Now he's nearly 60.
8: (laughs) Well, either way, uh, today is Thursday, uh, and we should have a new champion probably right about the time this episode gets posted online. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but I'll be watching it.
9: Yeah, I'm going to, you know, we're getting down to a pretty good battle here for Master of the Table between Dennis and uh, Boosty.
8: Right. Uh, Bustamante just got knocked out in the 11th round by Scott Frost. So, uh, and Dennis was knocked. Uh, Dennis got the bye, and then Ephra knocked him out in the 11th round. So both Bustamante and Orcoyo had uh, fourth-place finishes. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're close. It's going to come down to the nine ball. Yeah, I like it when it does then. Interesting that Shane is is nowhere to be seen, and
9: and he's playing well. Yeah, I, I, you know, I wish I were there so I could have a comment on that. But not being able to, to, to watch his game, it's hard to say if there's something wrong or if the other guys are getting all the roles or, or just what.
8: Well, I'll definitely be watching the uh, the semis and the finals. I believe the semis are at seven o'clock your time, and then the finals I'm sure are right after that. Of course,
9: Shane did win the Bigfoot, right?
8: He did, yeah. He won the Bigfoot, uh, got by Nils to win it. And and from what our roving reporter Dave Thompson said, uh, Nils was playing lights out. Yeah, well, he's been doing that lately. Um, I wanted to take this uh, show this week and talk about some of the things that have been talked about the past couple of weeks on the show by some of the other contributors. Um, Okay. Real quickly, um, our host, uh, Mr. Bond, uh, yes. was talking about streams last week, mm. and he put forth the notion that there might be too many streams, and he talked about why would somebody care to watch a stream, and his, his approach was that the streamers need to do more to, to present the story you know, give us a reason to want to watch this, give us a reason to care um, about these players. And, you know, a thought that occurred to me while he was talking about this is there's another reason, in my opinion, why people watch streams. Um, I'm an average player. Now you're, you know, you are a better player than I am. You've been out there. You've competed against the monsters of the game. I'm an average, I mean, I'm a bar banger, I'm a ball banger, you know, I play bar table league. But while I know that I can never play at Johnny Archer speed or Shane Van Boning speed, there's certainly things to learn watching them play. But I think as an average player, you still look at those top players as they're doing things that I can just never do. So if I look at them pulling off a shot there are going to be times when I just say yeah well they they know how to do that and there's I can just never I can never get to that level so there isn't a whole lot for me to learn here but by watching streams we have the opportunity to see players at all different skill levels so you know, I may watch a shortstop playing, and I may pick up things watching a shortstop, and I can say, you know what, I can do that. I may not be able to do what Johnny's doing, but I may be able to do what, what Joe Shortstop is doing.
9: Well, the other side of your coin there is when you watch Archer make a ball, and the cue ball goes two rails, and then through a narrow gap where there's some balls around it, and it and goes up with, and it doesn't hit any of those, and goes on down and gets perfect position. When that's a similar shot comes up when you're playing, it's always given me the mindset that wow, this is hard, but I know it can be done because I've seen it done. So watching these guys make these amazing shots gives me a little more confidence when I'm at the table. Um, but I think the stream is the greatest learning experience you can have if if just after after every shot you'll look at the table and imagine to yourself what you would do next and then watch what these pros do next you can learn from that oh
8: it's it's definitely a learning experience i mean 10 years ago what we had uh pat's videos and that's it yeah and now you know there's easily a half a dozen streams on any given weekend now
9: you know, going back
8: to what mr bond said and how do you, as a streamer, make that stream interesting? And, and why do you choose one stream over another?
9: Well, did, I, I'm not sure how you make a stream more interesting. It's, it's not like you have uh, access to take footage of these guys in their homes or in their home rooms playing. Uh, you can't do a lot of B-roll footage. So I'm not sure how you do that, frankly. It's, it's it would be nice, but I'd like some details on how he would do it. Well,
8: and in, in my opinion, I'll go back to the technical side of things. If you want to get your stream watched, you make it the best possible stream that it can be, quality-wise. Yes. I would rather see Accustats or TAR-quality streaming of two shortstops than two pros playing on a hundred dollar handy cam. Right. That, that's just my opinion.
9: Um... The, the way I judge streams, <laughs> and I'm probably being very unfair here, is if I can't see the player while he's sitting in his player chair and recognize him, uh, then it's not a good enough stream for me. There's not enough light around the table. If all you can see is the guys, once they're shooting at the table, um, that to me is not a quality stream. Um it's you know cameras require light, and the guys who go out and put out and and hang up the extra lights uh put out a much better stream
8: and I come from from the world of of building websites and and I've always said that it goes back to the same comparison uh, of getting a website built you know they When websites first came out and, and, you know, it became so easy to create them, you know, anybody, any 12-year-old could build a website. Well, Yes, they could. But the question is, do you want a 12-year-old building your business's website? Well, any 12-year-old now can stream a pool tournament, but do you want them streaming your tournament? You know, hanging a $100 handycam off of one of the lights and streaming your event, it, it and getting just two schmoes out of the audience to sit in and do commentary—that's not top-quality streaming. I mean, I want somebody who who is neutral and who understands what they're watching. And, and don't get me wrong—you know, I've I've streamed tournaments before, and it's tough to do that. I understand that, but it makes the product so much better.
9: Yeah. It really, but you know, the real problem with streaming is the finances involved. There's there's no way to do anything but lose money at streaming. Uh, at least I don't know anybody that's making money at streaming. Uh, but if you if you do a pay per view and you're lucky enough to draw a hundred people at ten bucks a piece, well, that's going to cover your travel expenses to get to the thing and and maybe your food and stuff, but. What's, where does the money come from that's supposed to pay for the cameras and the lights and the staff? And it's it's just a financially bankrupt situation. And, and until we can change that, um, I, I don't have a lot of hope for streaming. I mean, I've always believed that pay-per-view is a dead end because there just aren't enough fans who care enough about the game to pay to watch it. We know that when we go to tournaments. People won't even show up at tournaments, even when it's free to get in. So pay-per-view is, is just too tall a mountain for me to climb. So the only other avenue is advertising. And until more people will watch a free stream, the advertising revenue isn't there either because you're, you're looking at, uh, you know, you're doing good if you get one or 2,000 people watching you at the same time. And you need more than that to attract advertisers.
8: And that's another way that this industry tends to destroy itself in that you can get streamer A who has been streaming for years and they have multiple cameras and they have a soundboard and they have lights they bring with them and they hang the whole thing and they really put on a quality stream Yeah. and they go to a room owner or a tournament promoter or whatever and say, look, this is what I can do for you okay great do it well no it's not that simple you know I've got all this equipment and I need to travel and I need to bring all the equipment with me you know I'm gonna need 250 dollars from you and the promoter says well, why should I give you 250 dollars Johnny over there in the corner has got a camera in his bag there and he's got a little clip that he got at Walmart that he can clip it up there on that light he can stream it and he doesn't want 250 dollars so why should I deal with you exactly and they don't understand the difference
9: right they, they, they truly do not understand the difference. And it's wrong of us to expect them to understand the difference. Because if you've never been a photographer, if you've never had to take try to take pictures of pool players in dark rooms, you really don't understand how you're raping your camera to try and make it take pictures in dark light. I don't know what the answer is. Um, and don't get
8: me wrong, I enjoy the, the number of streams out there, but... I don't know where this is going, you know, I don't know what the end game is going to be with, with online streaming.
9: I wish I had, you know, the crystal ball that would tell me, because right now it's just a, a miserable world of mystery.
8: Well, another thing that came up in a recent show, our good friend Mark Cantrell was interviewing a, a neighbor of yours, Johnny Archer. Yeah. And Johnny put forth the notion that what the pool world needs is a new crop of promoters and players. Um, I'm going to let you address this first, but I'll come right out and say it right now. I disagree.
9: Well,. I don't disagree that we need a new crop of players and promoters, uh, especially promoters, since we have so few. The problem is there's no reason for anybody to be a promoter. Uh, There's no money to be made at being a promoter. I don't know of any existing promoters that actually turn a profit on their tournaments. Um, So at least not a problem. Somebody might make $1,500, $2,000 by running the tournament. I don't call that much of a profit, not for all the headaches involved in running a major event. Um, But, you know, the reason that uh, Barry Berman couldn't pay his players for so many years is because the money wasn't there. Um, So it's not like people are getting rich off of running pool tournaments. If they were, there'd be a lot of people putting on pool tournaments. And, you know, I helped – Body Nas to put together that ultimate ten ball championship and a pool tournament is a money sucking beast. Uh, you take the added money, let's see, Body added hundred thousand dollars to that event, but the event cost him over 200,000. So it's a lot more than just added money. You've got, you've got all these little bitty expenses to come up and just eat you alive. Um, and you have to make guarantees to hotels for room nights and food and beverage, and they don't count it properly, so they always wind up hitting you for a, a bill after the event that you didn't expect. It's it's just um, it's a miserable way to try and make a living, and until that changes, uh, I don't see a lot of promoters coming out of the woodwork, and I don't see it changing until people decide to go to pool tournaments. And we know
8: from... Last year, being at Mark Griffin's events, you know, this was the first year at the Rio. I mean, we know that he just got nickel and dimed to death by the unions, and and his expenses were much larger than he expected
9: they would be. They ate him alive. And if if I can, the the one other comment Johnny made about we need a crop of new players, Uh, yes. But what is their incentive? Why would anybody look at the pool scene in America today and say, gee, I think I'll turn pro.
8: Well, and, and what, what do you mean by turning pro? I mean, there, is, there really is no difference between a pro player and a, and a shortstop anymore except for their ability and who they wanna play against.
9: Well, that's true, but I mean, to, to the idea of becoming a full-time professional pool player 20 years ago was a reality. You could actually think about doing that. But I was doing the numbers the other day and last year, we only had uh, uh, one player in America who made over 100000 And we had uh, a total of three who made over 40000 and a total of five, five total players who made over 30000 So all but the top five players last year made less than $30,000, and uh, one of those $30,000 guys went to like 15 tournaments so if his expenses were only $500 a tournament you know he's down to just under $25,000 for income and that's we there's no reason for a new crop of players to come up when the financial scene is like that and the only cure for that is more tournaments and we've already been through the problem with that
8: Right and, and I would imagine that the top players had income from sponsorships and that sort of thing, but we're still talking about the same players and just a little bit more money.
9: Exactly. It's the same five players are making more money, but every year, well, you you go on our money leaderboard and just pick a player and look at his income from the year 2000 to now. And it, 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 it probably peaked in 2005 or six, and it's been going down ever since. And it was
8: commented on Facebook in the past four or five days, uh, comparing 2005 to 2013, and the comment was made that when there were player organizations in place, like there were back in 2005, that the, the pro pool scene was much better. So, the response was, we need to have that player organization back in place.
9: The pool scene was much better in spite of the player organizations, not because of it. I mean, I I can't think of a single positive thing that any player organization in the last 12 years has done to grow the game. Uh, They've done some things to protect the players and some things that needed to be done to protect the players. But I haven't seen them do anything to make the game larger.
8: And and this is a, a good segue into the last thing that I wanted to talk about. There are things that a player organization can do to promote the game. They, there is there is more that they can do than just protecting the players. They can also do things to help the professional pool game. Everyone can do something. Um, you know, you and I had this conversation yesterday, and. Anytime someone talks about what the game of Pro Pool needs, it's always, we need someone to, and then fill in the blank. We need someone to make a movie. We need someone to invest a lot of money. We need someone to come with a business plan that makes sense. We need someone to rescue the game of Pro Pool. My opinion is that, the game is going to be taken care of by the people who love the game. The people who listen to this show are people who love the game of pool. You love the game of pool. I love the game of pool. I mean, I, I get excited when I walk in a pool room and hear the balls hitting against each other. It, it, right. It, I love pool at every level. So I don't want to hear any more what pro pool needs is someone to what i would rather hear is i am going to fill in the blank and i think that every you know the forums are a great a great body of of people we have tournament promoters we have queue makers we have amateur players we have shortstops we have pros you name it they're on the forums and every different part of this game there is something that they can do um, From a fan who can't make a ball to pro players that can run out racks, you know, over and over again. I mean, look at Shane last year in Vegas after he won the pro event, was there for another hour taking pictures with any junior player that wanted to get in line and have their picture taken with Shane. And he sat there for hours and worked with those kids on on drills and on shots. He didn't have to do that. Correct you know, you say, well, I'm an amateur player. I can't do that. But there's so many things you can do. You can play in a league. You can get a lesson from an instructor. You can watch a stream. Um, You can play in a tournament. You're a room owner. You can hold an extra tournament. Hold a tournament knowing that you're not going to, to recoup your expenses for that one tournament. I mean, look at look at what they did with the the earl efron match and the the prize money that was put up on that there's no way that they made that back with sponsorships or with with you know the gate at the door or anything like that if if all of us that really care about the game honestly legitimately tried to do something to promote the game not just our own individual aspect of it you know no more of this well i'm excited about the future of the game because how it's going to help me that's ridiculous the game is in is on life support and people are saying oh it's got a great future because of how it's going to help me that's not the future of the game that's your future i'm talking about actually looking after the future of the game doing something that does not benefit yourself that benefits the game and if more people did that yeah we're not going to go back to 2005 overnight but the effect can snowball and I'm not I'm not trying to go away from what Tony Robles said last week where we all need to work together yes we do but while the movers and shakers need to work together Everybody at every level can do something to help promote this game.
9: Yes, absolutely. I I would particularly urge the fans to take advantage of any tournaments that are near them. At least go watch them. But when you have something like what Greg Sullivan set up in Derby City, where it's cheaper to go sign up as a player than it is to sign up as a fan, then why wouldn't you sign up to play at least you get to go back with the story of how you played johnny archer and lost nine to nothing but you made a three ball line you know it's it's better than sitting in the stands it is an experience and it's a way to support the sport that you supposedly love and well you know my my pet peeve forever in pool is that the fans are are not really fans they, they are not loyal to the sponsors and they don't go out of their way to support the sport, as we often see when we go to major metropolitan areas where the stands are empty on the finals day. Well, we've seen
8: it over and over again. When when I was on the WPBA board, you know, they they struggled to, you know, they had to move people from the sides to the front so that it would look like the stands were full. Right. And those were the best player, you know, the best female players in the world. And that was when
9: the WPBA was, was at its high point. It can be improved. I know for a fact it can be improved because I remember when I first started doing the Moscone Cup back in the late 90s, we would stand out in front of York Hall and give out free tickets to people who lived in the area and beg them to come use the tickets to put people in the stands. Uh, and we had to do the same thing, move people from the balconies downstairs and to one to the end where the cameras were pointing and all that because we couldn't fill the stands for the Moscone cup. Now they put the, they put half the tickets on sale one day this week for next year's Moscone Cup, and they sold all four hundred of them in an hour at pretty good prices. So you know if you're willing to work the event. You, you can popularize it. You can make it bigger. You can make it better, but it takes dedication and it takes a tenacity that I do not see in the American pool scene. I mean, people at the Moscone Cup this year were going, oh my goodness, what if, Mos- what if the Matchroom Sport decides that they should just cancel the Moscone Cup because this is such a whitewash? Well, Matchroom Sport has no plans of canceling the Moscone Cup. I think they're uh, they've got contractual obligations for the next three to five years, so we as fans need to put the same kind of energy into the game that the people at Matchroom are are, are putting in with their money as well.
8: Yeah, I, I can see the uh, I can see the comparison there being poor in that you just don't see. Promoters, or or really anyone in the American pool scene, that is that gung ho about what they're doing. I, I mean, I, I just wonder if if everyone is just tired. I mean, it's been bad for a while, and it doesn't look to be getting better. And, no, and, and, you know, let me back up a second. When I say that, I'm talking about the pro pool game. You know, the amateur right. game, I think, is is doing very well. Yes. But the pro pool game, the, the game that, you know, that we spend the majority of our attention on, the Derby City, the U.S. Open, the Turning Stone, you know, that is is struggling mightily.
9: Yeah, and even the, you know, we say the amateur game is going great guns, and it's, it is doing well, but how long can it continue to do well when more pool rooms close every year than open? And To keep pool rooms open, you need some excitement in the game. You need some sizzle on the stake. And that's what the pros give you. So those who sit by and say, well, the pro game can just go away and it doesn't matter, I I don't think they're taking a very long view.
8: But that goes back to our previous conversation in that the pros can actually do something to provide that sizzle. And and that means more than just... I'm here, I'm Joe Pro Pool Player, come look at me, you know, get out there and, and meet your fans and meet the audience and interact with them and teach them something and give them a reason to care that you're in a tournament or you're in the room or whatever. The, the idea that went along there for a while that we're pro pool players and the fans should just be honored that we're in their presence is ridiculous. I mean, our game is not going so well that, that that mentality is going to work.
9: Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Well,
8: I think that's probably more than enough time for us this week. Anything else, Jerry?
9: Uh, no, just waiting for the snow to melt.
8: <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget this weekend, Phoenix open palm trees,
9: Yeah, well, don't forget this weekend, Super Bowl, where it might be minus 10 or something like that in an outdoor stadium.
8: That's coming to Arizona here in the next couple of years.
9: You guys have a football stadium?
8: Yes, we do. We even have a football team.
9: You do? Yeah. Son of a gun.
8: (laughs) And we beat one of the teams that's in the Super Bowl, but I digress.
9: What what is that? The Phoenix uh, Desert Rats?
8: Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I think that's our hockey team. Oh, you, you have a
9: hockey team?
8: We have an everything team here. Really? We have hockey. We it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. We will uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks a lot for listening to AZ Billiards on American Billiard Radio.